Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you live, and welcome to another episode of Moments That Rock, part of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts, where there's endless, brilliant podcasts all about music. Today's guest is a gentleman called Stuart Epps, who has some great stories. I would introduce him, but that's his job. Okay, this is Stuart Epps, record producer, engineer. In the past, I've been involved in A&R and management, all sorts of aspects of the music business, really. But these days, I concentrate on what I think I do the best, which is record producing. But um, one way or another, I've been doing this uh, for over 50 years. And uh, it has been a bit of a career. And, and in the early days, there were some amazing moments. And uh, I always like to share those moments because otherwise they get lost, they get forgotten. And I certainly haven't forgotten them. So um, one that was um, maybe of interest was that uh, in the very early days, I used to tour with Elton John. I did tours with him um, when he was fairly unknown in this country, but this was in America. And uh, we did uh, Carnegie Hall. And it was great because... American audiences took to Elton. They just loved him and he loved them. We loved them. We love America. So um, I did a couple of tours. But then in, in 1974, um, I was actually working at Rocket Records and I was looking after Kiki D, who you might have heard of, and the Kiki D band. I helped put them together. And uh, amazingly enough, Elton says, how about joining um, me on my tour, this 1974 tour of America? Uh, with Kiki as support and obviously that was going to be brilliant Kiki was on Rocket Records that's Elton's record company so it's all in-house so we turned up at the airport this was a little bit different to Elton's early tours he had his own plane you know he had a 727 the Starship that the Stones had used all these bands maybe you two maybe you two I'm sure or they used it and um and we did a lineup. I mean, that photo is available outside this plane. And it, and it just looks, when you look at it now, like this ridiculous circus going on tour, you know. And uh, we all had plenty of hair. And um, even Elton, I think, had plenty of hair, although he was a lot slimmer in those days. But there was a lot of us. I haven't counted, but there might have been 30 people on that uh, on that plane as coming on this tour. Anyway, um, sort of. You know, it was the usual, really. I suppose it was a little bit different because I was looking after Kiki. So, actually, I used to come on stage and introduce the show, really. And every night, um, you know, I'd put on a different jacket. I'd pinch one of Kiki's jackets or one of Elton's sparkly jackets. So that was all good fun. Anyway, halfway through the tour, I can't remember the date exactly, but we can check on it. Um, Elton announces that we're having a visitor come and come visit us he's going to come on stage no other none other than john lennon so this is a bit amazing uh but everything you know all sorts of amazing things happen i mean stevie wonder came on the plane and started playing the organ and you you, you know there were always crazy things happening but anyway we we're looking forward to this and and the story goes and i'll try and get it right that uh, elton played on john lennon's whatever get it gets you through the night it was on the Walls and Bridges album, and I guess they became mates. And uh, Elton was in New York or somewhere, and he, he was playing on this track. And at some point, you know, Elton says, thinks he's doing him a favor. I shouldn't think he charged him for it. But he said, listen, if I'm doing this, if I'm doing this, my, my um, you know, my condition is that if it becomes a hit, if it becomes number one, in fact, 
I want you to come and sing with it, sing with me on stage. And John, not crazy about this track, and just says, yeah, no problem, because he's just fairly convinced this is no way going to be a hit. Okay, so then I don't know what year that was, but we spin forward to 1974, and sure enough, it is a hit, and it does become number one. And Elton's now appearing at Madison Square Gardens. So he calls up John. He says, right, remember you said you'd come and do the gig. We're playing tomorrow night, or we're playing in a couple of nights. You said you'd come, and come on stage, so he can't get out of it. So sure enough, um, at some point, John appears on the plane actually he was with us for a day or two and uh so we're, we're we're sharing time with john lennon and he's just great you know he's quite he's quiet i suppose anyone would be quiet no matter how famous they were in this mixture of uh, elton and kiki and the band and you know all the usual bodyguards and all this but anyway he was very nice he was all very pleasant so the, the day of the gig comes and i'm i'm a complete beatles fanatic you know i'm totally you know, I totally love the Beatles. So I'm sort of really sh shadowing John wherever he goes. You know, I just was hanging on, if you like. You know, I'll just stick with John, I think, for tonight, for today. And I end up in his dressing room. Uh, and he's actually with this lady, May Pang, who I don't know who she is, but he's obviously, the, you know, it's obviously his girlfriend. And there's only the, in fact, at this moment, there was only the three of them in the, three of us in the dressing room. There's me, John, and May Pang. And it's all very nice. I'm just thinking, I can't believe I'm in the dressing room with John Lennon. Uh, anyway, there's a knock on the door. There's the knock. I go and open the door, and it's 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 very obvious who this is. This is, this is Yoko Ono, staring me in the face. And the first thing that occurred to me is, bloody hell, you know, he, she's turned up. He's with another bird. As far as I know, he's still with Yoko Ono. So I'm thinking, what what, what do I do? Do I close the door in her face? Do I uh, say, sorry, there's no one in here? You know, I don't know what to do. I think I wish I hadn't opened the door, basically. But behind um, Yoko is a guy called Tony King, who is an old mate, and he looks after John Lennon, actually. He's also looked after Elton, and he's a proper music guy. I'm sure you actually probably know him. And he's giving the thumbs up. You see, he's going thumbs up. So I'm thinking, all right, well, if he says it's all right, it's all right. So I let her in, and um, and they're all friends. There's no sort of shouting and how do you catch me with May and all this sort of stuff. They seem to all know each other. And, and obviously, years later, you find out she was instrumental in putting them together. May was Yoko's secretary or something. And, you know, he went off with her, and she was all okay with that. Anyway, so that was, and it and it also turns out, because you only find out these things years later, that this was the night that John got back together with Yoko. And, um, well, maybe I had a hand in that. I don't know. If I hadn't opened the door, he might not have come in. They might, then again, he might not have got shot, because he might not. Anyway. Get in your resume, you're John Lennon's doorman. <laughs> we won't go into that, yeah. Um, Anyway, following that, uh, I'm still sort of tagging on to John, really, and it's time for him to go on stage. And uh, I'm tagging on with him, kind of looking after him. I'm supposed to be in the management, and he's not got anyone else there. So I literally, and I know this is true, I didn't dream it. I was with John at the bottom of the stairs, going up, and he's going to go up on stage, Madison Square Gardens, and he's 
crapping himself, really. I mean, I can't remember exactly what he said, but you could see he was very, very nervous. He hadn't been on stage for a long, long time. I, it was it was quite a few years. And uh, and he was nervous. And I'm thinking, it's been mad. You know, he's this is a Beatle here. He's done everything. He's been at Shea Stadium, for God's sake. But anyway, he as he starts to go on stage, I do remember he said, well, here we go, over the hill, you know, like it's some sort of World War One or something. And I ran round so that I could catch the uh, the moment when he hit the stage. And the place just went absolutely bananas. I mean, it, Madison Square, you've been there. It's a brilliant venue. Uh, it went into white noise. Scree you know, it wasn't screaming. It was yelling. It was shouting. And it seemed to go on forever. But at some point, I guess it stopped and, and Elton had introduced him and they... Uh, they broke into whatever gets you through the night, you know, the Beatles uh, song, which actually Paul sang. John didn't sing that. And it was just the most amazing. I mean, Elton's gigs were always amazing. But having John Lennon on there, I was just, we were all focused on John, you know. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. Um, Gus Dudgeon was there, the producer. He was uh, recording it. Because the crazy thing is, there's only about, no one had phones in those days. So there was only... Um, a little bit of footage. There's no proper footage. I mean, in subsequent years, Elton films every concert he does because the best concert, the most incredible one, there was no cameraman there. So there's very little footage, but there is, um, you know, there's audio because it, they actually released the tracks that they did, whatever gets you through the night. Um, I think, did they do I Saw Us Standing There? I'm not sure. Yes, I saw her standing there, because I just said that. And whatever gets you through the night, maybe Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which was another one that Elton did. But um, it was an amazing night. It was probably the best gig. Elton actually himself says it was probably his favourite gig, his most enjoyable night. And uh, I was just pleased to be there. Definitely. Uh, amazing memories. Fantastic. Yeah, I can, Im I can only imagine um, so, yeah, you've worked with a whole bunch of people, you know, Stuart, from like, you know, Led Zeppelin. I mean, the bloody stories. I don't know if you've seen any of the previous podcasts, but you know Henry Smith? No, I don't. I Henry was, you... it was Jimmy Page's roadie in the Yardbirds and, and then Zeppelin. So I've got some great stories about, um, you know, working oh, with Jimmy and, and, and Bonzo. He's coming back for round two. You probably will have to as well yourself. So do you have any... Obviously, like you've worked with a lot of major bands across a long period of time. I mean, obviously, the the Lennon and John thing stands out straight away because you mentioned that when we were emailing. Um, yeah. Looking back, you know, because when we get old, I personally I feel that you know when the roller coaster stops, you really start to look back and appreciate it a lot more because you're not <laughs> full on and wrapped up in the moment. But yeah. like now, I, I really enjoy hearing people sharing the moments that rock their world. So, yes. um, I'm sure there's something else. <laughs> Well, you mentioned um, you mentioned Zeppelin. So uh, I started at um, Gus Dudgeon built this incredible studio here in Cookham, where I still am in Berkshire. Um, and he built that after. In fact, it was after this tour, this 1974 tour. I sort of thought I've had enough, to be honest. It was a long tour. I met a woman in Hawaii, actually on Maui, who lived in an ice cream van. And I thought, you know what? I, I fancy this. This could be great. I'm going to retire and live with her in an ice cream van in Maui, in Hawaii. You know, it's beautiful, it's luxury, it's amazing. Um, before I was going to leave, I went to see Gus, and he said, well, it's a shame you're leaving because I'm going to build this studio called The Mill. So I thought, well, maybe that's a better idea. So I told the woman I'm not 
coming now. So um, we built, he built this incredible studio in Cookham. It took two years. Uh, he had it for five years. We worked with Chris Rear, was discovered there, and did Elton albums, did um, a band called Voyager, you probably remember, you know, but uh, it was a great time with Gus as his engineer because he is the ultimate producer I've ever known, ever worked with. Um, anyway, after five years, he he sold it, and he sold it to Jimmy Page. Um, so um, Jimmy asked if I'd stay on as engineer and studio manager, which, um, of course, I was happy to do because I loved the mill. So, um, so this period of working for Jimmy started, and I was getting ready to, to work with Zeppelin because I guess that was what we were going to do. Uh, but this terrible thing happened that uh, they were about to go on tour uh, John Bonham was staying at Jimmy's house and, and found him. He'd obviously got overexcited or something had happened prior to them going on tour and he died, you know, it was terrible. So um, I hadn't even met Jimmy yet. So it was quite a while because he was very, very upset. Uh, we thought maybe he'd be replaced, but that didn't seem like that was going to happen. But uh, eventually Jimmy did come in and we started on what was going to be a tribute album to John Bonham, which was... Uh, called Coda in the end and it started off pretty mad actually it was a track that Jimmy had uh, that John Bonham had done which was all drums they did it at uh, the, the studio in Montreux in Switzerland and, and they called it Bonzo's Montreux and I started doing this uh, drum mix you know mixing this track with Jimmy and that was the beginning of mixing other tracks uh, there was some outtakes from uh, In Through the Outdoor Great stuff. You're listening to Stuart Epps on this episode of Moments That Rock. Amazing stories about Elton John, John Lennon, and of course Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. And more of that to come. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And and working with Jimmy, I mean, I can you know I could fill a book really with stories, and you know uh, he wasn't he he wasn't your ordinary sort of geezer at all, uh, as you probably might expect, you know. But uh, 
I mean, he's he's an eccentric guy. I mean, eccentric Englishman, I would say. He just happens to be also a guitarist. You know, he was in the biggest band on the planet, Led Zeppelin. And if you mix all that up, you you get uh, this crazy guy, you know, who is actually quite quiet, is quite shy, but he's very switched on when it comes to uh, not just playing guitar, but, you know, the technical side, which is why he bought the mill. Um, and we had a, you know, you, you said just as we were starting here, um, you know, it's years ago and it's good to look back. And you tend to, when you look back, I'm sure you're the same. You only remember the high points, you know, all the crazy mad points. Um, and there were a lot of times when I was sitting there wishing I could uh, disappear and be somewhere else, um, you know, because we used to spend, well, I mean, Jimmy sort of lived bat hours, really. You know, he started two in the morning. But he might have said we're going to start at 12 in the afternoon. So we had to sort of put up with all that stuff. But we did a band called The Firm. He put together a band with Paul Rogers called The Firm, which was a brilliant, uh, one way or another, great band and great to work with these great people. Paul Rogers, amazing singer. Were these in um, Swan Song? Was this Swan Song? It's, uh, do you know what? That's a very good question. I should think it probably was, but I'm absolutely, no, I think it was for Atlantic, actually. Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point, but I think the firm albums were on Atlantic. But I'm absolute. I'm actually not sure. I'm not sure. Definitely, the the last Zeppelin album was because I think that was why he almost did it was because they had to fulfil a con- contractual whatever it was. Um, so the other project I did was um, we did the music to Death Wish Two, which was this uh, crazy film with Charles Bronson with uh, the even more crazy Michael Winner as um, as director, <laughs> who I actually I really liked though. He, he was a mad guy. And he'd met Jimmy apparently, you know, he had the house next door, Jimmy's house in London called the Tower House. And he he reckons that he shouted at him over the fence or something. Fancy doing the sound on my uh, on my next film. But uh, but Jimmy was amazing on that, I found. He he was very inventive. We used uh, the Roland guitar synth, which was very new. He used this thing called the theremin, you know, this mad early 1900s electronic instrument, you know. And he was he's so into he was so into the uh, the technical side, you know. He he had one of the first automated desks. So probably not everyone knows that. Obviously, they only know him for being a, a guitarist and considered one of the best of all time, I suppose. But uh, sometimes it didn't feel like that in the room. I got to say. But um, he so always how, came how out. How old were you around this time? Uh, well, working for Jimmy, that was in the early 80s. It was about 81, yeah, 81 through 84. So, Oh, right. So you'd I, already served your apprenticeship. Yeah, I would think so, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to retire at 23. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> and go to Hawaii, at, yeah? yeah. I started I mean, at 15, so sort of chucked a lot of stuff into those early years, really. Well, that would have got a lot of press if you'd have enticed Jimmy Page out to Hawaii to record an album in an ice cream truck. Yeah, that would have been a good <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, what you were saying earlier, that, you know, I probably would have swapped places with George Martin and just just produced The Beatles. I think I'd have been happy with that. But as it turned out, I ended up working with a lot of different, like you said, a lot of different artists, from Cliff Richard to 
you know, Elton, Zeppelin, Bill Wyman I worked with for nearly 30 years. So it's a lot of different bands, a lot of different styles, the Rhythm Kings, and which I suppose was, um, well, it is good to have my name on all that different music and different Absolutely. projects. Yeah. But I'd have swapped with George on the Beatles, though, definitely. <laughs> But obviously, the, the the likes of the people you work with, it wasn't just the people. I mean, you work with Led Zeppelin, you work with Peter Grant, you know. You work with people who have, like, great infrastructure around them, and you get to understand why they're successful. You're kind of yeah. part of the puzzle. They put the right people in place. And I always find that, you know, like with bands... Like when I interviewed Henry, and you'll, you'll love some stories that he talks about, because he talks about driving uh, Jimmy around because he didn't have a license, you know, and taking uh, him yeah. to like auctions. And then he was right. bidding so that Jimmy would get the thing. There's, there's just great stories. Oh, so, yeah. Absolutely. But the thing is, when, when you kind of look back on a period like that, I mean, I remember, you know, when I, when I got Henry um, on board, I said, listen, we don't want to know the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's boring. They invented it. You know, we want to know like the stories that people haven't heard. And it's just incredible to hear stories about Peter Grant and, and you know, because, the, you know, I find I saw Peter Grant do um, a, a talk, a, a conference called In the City in Manchester, which Tony Wilson from Factory put on. And Ed Bicknell was interviewing him, Dallas Straits manager. And um, he asked him, like, you know, what happened when Bonzo died? Were you going to continue? And you could see the lump in his throat, you know, and he said, without John Bonham, there is no Led Zeppelin. And the only time yeah. that band reformed was the Army Ertigan Foundation. That's right. Away, yeah, you're right. Which I yeah. think is so cool. And Henry tells yeah. a story about when he came back, he, he went to see Zeppelin reform. The internet went down when they played um, for, the, for the foundation. And I phoned him up and I went, well... He said, well, what? I said, what was it like? And he said, Tony, I have never heard Jimmy Page play better. Because with yeah. respect, in the periods through the 60s, 70s, Clapton, Page, they were off their faces. They were literally leaning on their Marshall stacks playing guitar. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, he's kind of, you know, a grown-up, older guy with all that behind him, but still a phenomenal player. I just think, you know, there must be so many mentors around you that you learned so much. I mean, if you're in the presence of people like George Martin, I mean, even if you hadn't thought of being a producer, you would have them, wouldn't you? Well, I was never in the presence of George Martin. The the guy oh, you for me was sorry. I uh, know. I was just saying that I would have swapped places with him rather than work with a lot of bands. You know, just to work with the Beatles would have been all right. But yeah. um, no, it was Gus. It's Gus Dudgeon who was my mentor as oh, far right. as production yeah. is concerned. I mean, we worked together closely and for hours and hours because he was a total uh, perfectionist and I could write a book about times with Gus. And, and Gus, um, you know, only, not only did Elton, but he also did this band Voyager and discovered Chris Rear, did his, and we did his first couple of albums. And well, I worked with Gus pretty much full on for five years at the mill, but then I was also at Dick James when when Gus was introduced as Elton's producer and produced that first Elton album with the orchestra, and none of us had ever heard a sound like that. You know, the guy is a total genius and uh, and also a, a, an amazing character. I mean, I can talk about his character was crazy. You know, he was very uh, flash with his dress sense. You know, he was like Elton in a way. I'm not sure who got what from who, but the two of them were an amazing duo. You know. So you're right, you know, to know, I didn't know, um, I only met um, Peter Grant once, he, he 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 rang on the, I was at the mill, there was only me and Jimmy, Jimmy was in the control room, and there was a ring at the bell, I go upstairs, open the door, and there's this massive figure, and I was, I think to remember he was carrying a doctor's bag, but I might have got that wrong, but he looked very, very like, what the hell is this? 
And he's going, hello, you know, I'm Peter Grant. Is Jimmy in? And I said, well, I'll go and have a look. And he looked at me like, I beg you, you know, what are you? I'll go and have a look. You know, because I was very reticent to let anyone in if Jimmy was around, you know. Jimmy, there's Peter somebody to see you. (laughs) Yeah, there's Mr. Grant or someone. Anyway, that's the only time I met him. But, um, I mean, when Jimmy owned the mill, it was a commercial studio, but he kind of rented it to his friends. So his friends included George Harrison, uh, Mick Fleetwood and Bill Wyman, you know, in three different occasions. And uh, and so, you know, it was a great period. And also working with Atlantic Records, working with Phil Carson, who was running it. And then he, he introduced me to uh, the, one, the first one was uh, Vandenberg that I produced, the rock band. And then Twisted Sister, you know, who I produced. And and these were crazy guys and they were great projects, really. So, um, but in later years, you know, when you were talking about um, personalities, again, I got to work with Oasis. They came to book my studio. And, and that was an interesting one because I actually wasn't a fan at all. And uh, it was Noel that came in on his own. But uh, he brought with him just about every piece of studio gear and instrument I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was a big, it was a big studio, but he brought like 120 guitars, uh, drum kits, mellotrons, electric pianos, everything. He's so into equipment, and he'd already been working on this album on the shoulders of giants. And at, uh, but anyway, at some point, he said, "Right, we're packing up, we're going home." He said, "Liam's found out we're here. He's gonna, he's on his way. He'll come in. He'll trash the place. We better get out." So I thought, well, that's bloody nice. Yeah, I haven't even paid for the second week yet. Anyway, while we're sort of half, they were half sort of packing up, Liam arrives, and he's bloody great. You know, I'm sort of quaking a little bit because I don't know what I'm going to expect. And he's the nice one. He's the charming one. He's actually really friendly and great fun. I got unless, you talk to, unless you talk to Noel. <laughs> yeah, Noel wasn't so chatty, to be honest. I mean, brilliant musician. And also, the two of them seemed to be getting on at that time anyway, and we went to the pub, had a few drinks, and you could feel the power from those guys when they were just listening to tracks back and they were drinking and dancing about and rapping. You know, you could I could only imagine, I never saw the band, but you could imagine those two, the power behind that band. You know, you got Liam. I mean, actually, Noel's not a bad singer either, but Liam is the, is the lead singer and he's the front man, isn't he? So... You know, and then you realise why they made it. Well, yeah, the, the, you know? the thing is, it's it's like um, I'm a Mancunian. So, you know, like oh, at the yeah. end of the day, you know, I worked with New Order, the Stone Roses, Happy wow. Mondays, a whole bunch of those. Yeah. Didn't actually work with Oasis, but I think Oasis benefited enormously from um, the Stone Roses and the album that John Leckie did with them. Yeah. Um, I thought it was incredible. And, uh, you know, there's there's always a certain amount of cynicism in us Manx, you know, because I do feel that with, with the Gallagher brothers, they don't seem to fall out unless they've got an album out because it makes a good press. They get on the rest of the time. <laughs> well, absolutely. It didn't do them any harm. But from the stories of their, from their roadies, they, they really didn't get on. You know, they wanted to kill each other. There's a lot of jealousy. I guess Noel's got 100 million and... Liam's only got 20 or something. The boys, the the boys did well, definitely. I mean, Clint Boone from the Spiral Carpets. I mean, Noel used to roadie for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I first heard Oasis and, and heard how how much they pinched from the Beatles and John Lennon and all that, I just thought, well, that's, that's 
disgusting, to be honest. I thought that is terrible. But when you actually work with them, you realise that they love the Beatles so much that they just idle. Well, Liam does. Yeah. He thinks he is John Lennon. He idolises them and he thinks, well, that's who I want to emulate. And he emulates them. But let's face it, emulating a band and then making a whole huge career and becoming the, one of the biggest bands is not easy. No. You know, however closely you want to emulate something, you've got to make it your own. And that's what they did. People listen to Oasis, probably never even heard the Beatles, some of them. So, you know, you've got to take your hat off. But you could feel the personalities, you know, Liam's personality is pretty uh, full on, you know, and they've all the passion and everything else, which is what you always come across. Well, I always did. You know, you, you meet someone and you know, like with George Harrison, although he's very quiet, very shy, uh, when he put his sly guitar and I actually was honoured to be honest, to record him playing slide guitar. And I was crapping myself because I thought I've got to get his sound. How am I going to do that? And he just put a strat on and plugged it in, started playing, and it sounded exactly like George Harrison. It wouldn't be anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you realise, shit, well, of course, it's not the sound. It's, it's what he plays, you know. No, that's brilliant. Um, well, obviously, it's great because you were obviously in the right place at the right time, which is always important from any side of the music industry, you know, to, because I, I found that, you know, I'm doing my own little lessons learned from rock and roll project, all the stuff that I learned from working with people like Bowie, you know, you understand how people deal with fame and egos and things like that. And you too, yes. you know, not signing a record contract until they had a manager. I mean, who does that at that age? Most people sign yeah. their life away and spend the rest of their life sorting it out because... They just back. dive in with enthusiasm. So many kind of conflicts and stuff. Ah, the longer this series of podcasts of mine goes on, the more I enjoy the stories. You've been listening to Stuart Epps on Moments That Rock with some great stories involving John Lennon, Elton John, Oasis, uh, Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin, etc., etc. I think he's going to get an invite back. I'll get on and email him now. Like I said, you've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. It is part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. Subscribe, review, come back for more. I will. See you later. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.